incredible episode of the Love Your Bod Pod. I'm your host. I'm Kara Corinne Safeli. I'm a certified health coach. And on this podcast, we talk about female empowerment, food freedom, body liberation. We talk about the political and social influences that contribute to body shame in our culture. We talk about intuitive eating, health at every size, and my goal is always to support you guys in taking your life back from diet culture and standing in your power and in your bigness. Today, we have Abigail Sigi with us. Oh my gosh, you guys, so pumped, so pumped to have Abigail on. I am a really big fan of hers. I read her book, What's Wrong With Fat?, TBH, to be totally honest, I was nervous going into this podcast interview because she's someone that I have so much respect for. And I was like, oh no, like I hope I don't make a fool of myself, blah, blah, blah. You know, anyways, it turned out great. Abigail's amazing. And I had mentioned this on Instagram, but I kind of want to say it here on the podcast so that you guys also have a heads up so you know what's coming. You know, towards the end of 2020, the beginning, uh, I'm sorry, the end of 2019, towards the beginning of 2020, I was thinking about the direction of Kara's Kitchen and under the umbrella of Kara's Kitchen is the Love Your Bod Pod. And I was like, what's the direction I want to go in? Where do I want to take this? And what really kept coming through for me when I was reflecting and meditating and journaling was how I wanted Love Your Bod Pod to become even more of an educational platform. So when I first started the Love Your Bod Pod, my goal was really to tell stories and to have on as many women as possible talking about their relationships with food and their bodies and their journeys to where they are. Now, of course, the Love Your Bod Pod has been educational. It's absolutely been educational. Even just this morning, I got another email from a woman saying that she just found my podcast and in a few short weeks, she's already had like a radical perspective shift. And has, uh, and has shifted into a new frame of mind. So I know that the Love Your Bod Pod is powerful and transformational and it's educational. And for the most part, I have focused on having other influencers and other women that I've met through Instagram who are advocates on the podcast. And my goal moving forward is to have those that are more professionals in their field, those that are professors, PhDs, renowned authors and speakers and doctors. I want to have as many of those as possible moving forward to really have the Love Your Bod Pod be a very powerful, influential, educational platform. So There will still be some episodes here and there where I'm just talking about whatever I'm talking about. There will, of course, still be women telling their stories. And what you can expect more of is episodes like today where I'm interviewing someone who is very well-renowned, someone who's a prominent researcher, well-respected in her field, who has written multiple books very important books that look at our culture and that look at oppression and how people come out of oppression. So I'm really excited for today. The podcast is super, super jam-packed and that's a little bit of what you can expect for the future with the Love Your Bod Pod. I hope you're just as excited as I am about this shift. I had mentioned on Instagram that I hired an assistant. Woo! Yay! 
Carrie's Kitchen is growing. I hired an assistant and the first task that I gave her was uh, I gave her a list of like my favorite authors and doctors and therapists and just renowned people. And I'm like, hi, please email all of them, reach out to their PR people or whatever and ask them to be on the pod. So I'm really excited. We have a couple of more already lined up and I know that we'll continue to have more in the pipeline. So I hope you're stoked. I'm stoked. Also, quick little announcement. I had briefly mentioned this last week, last week's episode, that I am in the process of putting together a brand new group coaching program that also has an an online course included with my mentor and friend, fellow transformational coach, Brandilyn Tebow. As y'all probably know, if you've listened to this podcast, Brandilyn radically changed my life. She's an incredibly powerful woman. And we both had eating disorders and... We want to help other heart-centered, high-achieving, driven women who want to turn their struggles into something that helps be of service to the world. So just like me, I had an eating disorder and now I help people heal their relationship with food. And if you have that feeling inside of you that you are here to make an impact, that you want to help other women go heal from the same struggles that you yourself have gone through. You would love to have it be a business and make money. So if you are someone who's interested in learning how to take someone through a transformation with food in their body, you want to deeply understand the political nature of food and body issues because it's not really personal, it's political, which you probably know if you listen to the podcast, but you will also fully understand after you listen to today's episode. And you want to build a business and help others, then please reach out to me. Shoot me a DM on Instagram at Kara's Kitchen. And let me know that you want to learn more about the program. We're about to launch it and open up enrollment. But if you DM me, we are only taking a limited number of students. We are absolutely going to keep this intimate so that those who go through the program really come out with a solid foundation and a business to help be of service to the world. So be sure to shoot me a DM so that I can put you on that wait list and give you early access. Okay. Thank you so much for listening to the Love Your Bod Pod. If you're a new listener, welcome. Hey, what's up? If you are a returning listener, welcome back. I'm so happy you're getting value out of the podcast. And I'm really excited about today's episode, as I've mentioned multiple times. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode with Abigail Sigi. Welcome back to the Love Your Bod Pod. Today we have an incredible guest with us. Her name is Abigail Sigi. Abigail, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Cara. I'm delighted. Yeah. So you're a UCLA professor, you're a cultural sociologist, and you've written many books. So can you tell us, for those, for those listening who aren't familiar with your work, a little bit more about your background and how did you get to where you are now? Sure. So, you know, I have a longstanding interest in how people challenge oppression and oppressive ideologies. So um, I started research. My first interest in this was with women's movements. And I studied this when I was an undergraduate student. I studied the U.S. and French women's movement. Actually, I began studying the French women's movement. And then I broadened it out to the U.S. and French women's movement for my doctoral dissertation at Princeton and at a university as well in Paris. I did a joint um, PhD. I looked at how sexual harassment has been defined 
as an issue and a problem and, and a body of law in the U.S. and France, and what about those two national contexts led to very different understandings and definitions of sexual harassment. And then um, from there, I shift gears in 2000 after I was done with a PhD in a um, postdoctoral project, and I started asking about body weight and people who were challenging mainstream understandings about bigger bodies being pathological and a public health crisis. And so there I became really interested in the fat acceptance movement as another movement that was challenging just really deep-seated um, biases and, um, and gaining more freedom and liberation through those politics. And um, that led to the book, uh, What's Wrong With Fat, which I published in 2013. The first book, I should say, my dissertation was published as What is Sexual Harassment from Capitol Hill to the Sorbonne? That was a 2003 book from California. And uh, just today, actually, I received a copy of my newest book, which is called Come Out, Come Out, Whoever You Are. And, um, and that book is actually pulling together a, a lot of the work that I've done. So it's... Um, analyzing how different groups, including the fat acceptance movement, including um, survivors of sexual assault, undocumented immigrant youth, polygamists, and others are talking about coming out as a certain kind of person um, in order to resist stigma and organize for social change. So across all of this work, I'm again, I'm really interested in how people who are oppressed in, in some way are able to resist, are able to organize and enact social change. Mm, yeah, I mean, fascinating, absolutely fascinating topics. Your new book sounds incredible. Congrats on that. I'm so curious, yeah, I'm curious of, of what piqued your interest into understanding oppression and how oppressed people rise above that. Was there something that happened in your past or like how'd you stumble upon this as a subject matter? You know, that's a really great question that I have to say I haven't really thought of in those terms before. Um, this but the first thing that comes to mind is um, I was bullied when I was 13, um, and that was it, it lasted for a whole year. It was a pretty traumatic experience, and um, and it got me thinking a lot. You know, just when you're in that situation, what's happening? How can I redefine the situation? How can I fight back? And so I think maybe, you know, again, I hadn't thought about that before, but maybe that's where this, this interest stems from. How, how are individuals and groups, and I, I did end up banding together with three other friends who um, had experienced the same bullying from the same person, and we found that we were stronger as a group, and we were able to redefine the situation we were in and find something positive and and um, redeeming a wonderful friendship that came out of that. And um, so, you know, thanks again for the question. Maybe that's where it comes from. Certainly in all of my projects, that's really what I'm looking at, how marginalized groups are able to resist and struggle and, and improve their lives and, and the lives of others. Mm. Yeah, I, thank you for going there. I could see how that would be a, a, a formative experience for where you are now. You had mentioned um, your book, What's Wrong With Fat? And it's a 
fantastic book for those of you listening. I definitely recommend that you check it out. So you had kind of touched on this a little bit about like why you were drawn to the fat acceptance movement. And that was because you were seeing these groups of people sort of rebel against the status quo. But what drew you to want to really study how our culture views and understands fatness? And, and yeah. what were you surprised, were you surprised by what you learned while you were writing the book? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have so many negative biases about bigger bodies in this country. And I think that I initially bought into those uh, unskeptically as, as so many other people do, you know, and then doing the research, it really was absolutely transformed my understanding of, um, of the relationship between weight and health. Um, gave me a deeper appreciation for the issue of weight-based discrimination. And, um, you know, that was over a decade of research and it, it really had a profound impact on me personally, as well as my intellectual journey. You know, the, the answer to your question originally, how I got into this, it was partly of necessity in that I got this wonderful postdoc through the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation after I got my PhD in 2000, in the year 2000. And the, a requirement, it was a, it was a postdoc in health policy research. And so I was required to develop a project in health policy research. I initially proposed to do a project on patient right, patients' rights and just couldn't quite get excited about it. It just didn't really speak to me. I did some research, I, I did, but I just couldn't really get into it. And um, at the time, there were a couple of political scientists who were with me at Yale University where I was housed. And they were interested in the kind of political response in terms of um, political agenda related to what was being called the obesity epidemic. And so they kind of took for granted what everybody was saying that obesity was becoming a major public health crisis, that the number of deaths associated with overweight and obesity were going to overtake smoking as a leading cause of death, all of this kind of framing that everybody was just taking for granted. And they were saying, given this, why isn't this more of a, a, a priority, a political priority? Why aren't we putting public resources into fighting the obesity epidemic? And they kept talking about it in terms of why is this not political? But I was coming from the sociological perspective. I had studied social movements. I was very interested in identity, including feminist, you know, women's identities and, 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 um, and the like. And so I started researching I, politics, identity, body weight, and I stumbled upon uh, the fat acceptance movement or the, the fat liberation movement, fat rights movement. Um, these are different synonyms for it. And I just thought, wow, what a fascinating movement and what a courageous group of people because they, this is such, you know, you're really going uphill in fighting against weight, you know, weight um, anti-fat bias. It's so deeply ingrained. It's so unquestioned, including among progressives. How, you know, how are they doing this? How are they organizing? So I started studying that. At the same time, I also got um, started um, discovering that the uh, politics of knowledge were way more complicated than, than most people realize. And so 
all of these assertions about you know obesity being a, a, a preventable leading cause of death was actually you know the evidence was really not there that um, there were all sorts of measurement problems in the way this research had been done that even though higher body weight was associated with various illnesses and in some cases mortality the causation was unclear in some cases higher weights were actually associated with lower death particularly among the overweight but not obese category and so then i you know also started researching that and asking questions of you know how do we know that obesity is the public health crisis that everyone thinks it is um, and if actually the date the evidence isn't there why do we still believe this and you know all of these questions uh, come to get you know were things that I that I explored in various research that I that I ended up bringing together in that book what's wrong with fat mm, yeah it's fascinating and you had meant you had said something the politics of knowledge what exactly yeah. does does that mean well you know so how we know what we know how things come to be accepted as fact is a social process you know it it doesn't just facts don't just emerge out of the blue they are things that people you know they people do research and it goes through peer review and it's published or it's not and then it gets publicized in in the news media and all of this is are social processes that are informed by people's biases by um, things like confirmation bias the way we tend to accept certain certain things unquestionably or uncritically when they confirm our biases what we think to, to be true the way we tend to be much more critical or skeptical of things that go against what we um, think to be true the way the news media amplifies um, or you know gives more um, attention or credence to certain kinds of findings and less to others the role that organizations like the international obesity task force which is funded by pharmaceutical companies and has played a really important role in raising concern about a so-called obesity epidemic you know the, the 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 politics of that so the book you know looks at all of these things including the way the news media has selectively reported on certain kinds of findings the most alarmist ones the ones that confirm concerns about um obesity being a public health crisis and how the news media has been more skeptical and raised more questions about research even when that research is is more rigorous and carefully done but they the news media is less likely to accept is more critical of work that challenges assumptions about obesity being a major public health crisis or something that is necessarily bad for you and associated with morbidity and mortality mm -hmm. yeah and and so really you had mentioned like the the pharmaceutical industry sort of funding the obesity task force so there's like a conflict of interest there so to speak that they would benefit from us seeing obesity as a health crisis and so that kind of murkies the water and it influences the way that we as a society interpret it uh, yeah absolutely you know there there are two two-thirds roughly of the u.s population are currently 
fall into the, a BMI category over 25, so they're either considered overweight or obese. Two-thirds of the U.S. population, you know, from a marketing perspective, that is a huge business mm-hmm. share, you know, the market share. That is just a huge number of people. So if you can convince people that obesity is a deadly disease, then you know, you just, and, and that is a huge market to, to whom you can sell weight loss drugs. And weight loss drugs have, are, have all sorts of, you know, they are associated with just huge health risks. They're, they're not very effective, the ones that we've had. And, and, um, and there's all sorts of associated risks. But if you can argue that the risks of doing nothing are so huge, then that can, then you can make the case that we should tolerate risks associated with these drugs. You can also make the argument that we should um, expedite FDA approval, you know, hurry it up, that it's an urgent, um, urgent situation that again, you know, the FDA should approve drugs even when there are uh, significant health risks associated because the risk of doing nothing is so great. So yeah, there are real economic uh, interests at, at stake mm-hmm. in um, in this, and and we and most people aren't really aware of them or how they're shaping the, the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had mentioned earlier that at first you had accepted sort of the narratives about fatness in in our society, and I absolutely did as well. Just accepted it that like I had really just was raised with the idea that like thin is good and healthy and that fat is bad and unhealthy. And it wasn't until later in life that I became aware of different research that led to a really big shift in paradigm. And in the book, you had taught, you talk about framing and essentially that's like the perspective that you look through. So when you're, when you're looking at fatness, are you looking at it through a public health crisis frame the medical problem frame, the moral issue, fat acceptance, health at every size, et cetera, et cetera. And that based on which frame you look through or perhaps which frame the news is looking through is going to dramatically impact your understanding of fatness. So through your research, where you are now, what frames have you found to be the most accurate and most helpful overall and which have been the most inaccurate and unhelpful? Yeah, so, you know, any frame is going, the way I talk about this and the way I teach it to my students is that every frame is partial. It captures, it's like a picture frame. You know, you, you, don't, you don't get everything in the, in, the, in the frame. You're gonna focus on certain aspects of reality and you're going to obscure others. So, the prop you know the problem is when people are only exposed to one or two frames and they're really only getting part of the picture so when we talk about weight in this country and when we talk about fatness bigger bodies overwhelmingly the two frames that you hear are the medical frame and the public health crisis frame so the medical frame emphasizes the medical risks associated with higher weight and the public health crisis frame emphasizes the risks at a population level of the fact that the population is getting higher. So, you know, I'm not going to say there's no medical risks associated with higher weight. 
there are some. The, the most, the strongest one is type 2 diabetes, which the risk of that clearly goes up. You know, it's a linear relationship as you, as people get heavier. And it's from, from you know, across the weight spectrum. So that's there. That is, you know, part of the, the reality. Now, what is it miss? Well, first of all, association is not causation, right? So the association is clear. The causation is extremely murky. It's possible that being heavier, that the actual pounds causes type 2 diabetes. It's one of the hypotheses. It's also possible that insulin resistance or the type 2 diabetes causes weight gain. There's a lot of evidence for that. It's also possible that some third factor the way you know you eat, the lack of sedentary lifestyle, um, stress, which drives up cortisol levels, you know, and, and can ironically, you know, stress is, is also associated with um, stigma and discrimination, including weight-based discrimination. That those, that the kind of third factor, could increase both the weight and the risk of type two diabetes. And you know, those those facts get completely lost in the medical frame, which suggests that there is this kind of causal relationship and that, that really hasn't been established. The medical frame also misses the fact that in some cases being heavier is protective of health. So we know that among people who have heart disease, those who, so you know, among that clinical population, those people who are in the obese category are less likely to die. Again, we don't understand the causation very well, but the association is there, and you miss that. You miss the protective, uh, you know, health benefits of higher weight when you, when you're using the medical frame that considers weight on, you know, higher weight as unhealthy. We miss the fact that the group with the best mortality rates is this overweight but not obese group, the group with a, a body mass index, which is your weight in kilos divided by your height in meters squared, a body mass index between 25 and 30, which is the, the definition of overweight, they have actually the lowest mortality rates. Well, you wouldn't know that based just on the medical frame. Well, similarly, the public health crisis frame it you know captures some part of the reality. It's true that body sizes have increased since the 1970s, and and we don't quite understand why. Um, but the idea that population health is declining, it's not clear that 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 the increase in weight is actually leading to a decline in in health. And again, the people with the lowest mortality are in this overweight category. So, you know, so that, so that those are some of the, the limitations of those two frames. And then the frames that we don't, we're not as, ex most people are not exposed to as much. And then I think have something really valuable to offer are the health at every size frame and the fat, what I call the fat rights frame. So a health at every size frame would emphasize that people can be healthy at a wide variety of sizes, and that rather than focusing on weight loss, which very rarely works, and in fact mostly leads to weight gain, people should focus on improving their health at whatever size they are. Um, so that would mean 
getting more activity, getting more movement, there's very clear evidence that that is good for you. But so are things like cultivating your friendship network. Um, that's really good for your health, um, as well as, you know, eating more vegetables and fruits and things for, for most people. Um, that, that will be good too. But doing those things without, not as a means of, of losing weight, but because they have independent benefits on, um, on your health. And the fat rights frame, I think, is, is really important. It really shifts the conversation entirely so that we understand that weight is not just about health or health risks, but that there, that weight is a basis of discrimination, stigma, and, and exclusion. That weight-based discrimination is a major problem. It in, its, in and of itself is a societal problem. It's, a, it's an issue. Stigma and discrimination also has negative health implications. And so just to be aware of that and to be asking how can we address that rather than how can we make people thin, how can we um, address weight-based discrimination and stigma, we would really benefit from asking that question. Hmm. And can you share with us a little bit about the implications of weight stigma and discrimination and how that is is unhealthy and the harm that that's Sure. Causing? Yeah. I mean, you know, generally um, stigma and discrimination are just not good for, for your health. Making people feel badly about themselves, shaming them, it you know, there's evidence that stigma and stress and the, just the stress that comes from discrimination raises cortisol levels. Um, it's, you know, rough, it's loosely referred to as a stress hormone, which can then raise blood pressure and, and have all sorts of, ironically, many of the same negative health outcomes that are that are often attributed to higher weight. So it's also, you know, possible that it's not the weight itself that's causing a lot of negative health outcomes. It's the, it's the, you know, the the way we abuse and mistreat people. It's the stigma and discrimination that's causing the the health outcomes. But also something like, you know, many, I mean, so many ways. The the way that a lot of um, heavy women don't want to go to the gym, don't want to exercise in public because they have experienced being insulted, having people throw things at them, yell at them because of their weight. So, you know, that is not, that is absolutely harmful for people and for people's health. The way that a lot of, you know, a lot of um, heavy people have, have told me just horrifying stories of going to the doctor and it doesn't matter what they have. They could have a sore throat. They could have a, you know, be struggling with infertility or have other, you know, hair loss, whatever it is, the doctor just says, well, you know why you're, you're, you know why this is happening. It's because of your weight, you need to lose weight. And they don't do the tests. They don't do the test to figure out what's actually happening. And in some cases, if a person hadn't sought out a second opinion and gotten the test, they, they would have literally died because they had some undiagnosed illness that needed treatment and it had nothing to do with their weight. So, you know, in these cases, people's weight-based stigma and prejudice is literally killing people. Yeah, it's leading to misdiagnosis, like you said, or, or not even being diagnosed, being completely... Yeah, diagnosed. besides all of the people who don't go to a doctor because they, you know, so many 
people have told me that the place where they feel the most weight-based discrimination is in the doctor's office, that in out you know beyond the doctor's office there's some understanding that you you know it's really not polite you shouldn't say that but in the doctor's office then then all of a sudden it's for your own good you know it's i'm telling you this for your health and the gloves come off and and it's a hostile environment and it's not and you know so what do you do well a lot of people just won't go and then um, and then they're not getting the screening they're not getting the tests that 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 can detect issues early and save lives. Yeah. So this next question I think is a huge loaded question. I, so I don't think we're going to have time to do like a full blown answer, but I'm curious if you have like a cliff notes answer. How do you think we got here? Why do you think we got to this place where we have such a harsh negative view upon body size? Yeah. Well, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the way in which today in the contemporary U.S. context and in other wealthy nations around the world, heavier bodies are associated with lower socioeconomic status. In, you know, for much of history and still in many places around the globe today, where there's food scarcity, being heavier is a sign of wealth. And status and in those places it's considered desirable and beautiful and a, a sign of health and prosperity to be heavier particularly for women and so a lot of kind of extra a lot of value gets stored in women's bodies and traded um, through men and this happens in our society and happens in others and places where there's um, food scarcity, you know, that's where you see young girls and women being fattened up for marriage, right? So it's just as a sign of their father's wealth and, um, and, and, you know, and, and then their husband's wealth, right? That the, the token um, wife in those societies is heavy. Well, in the contemporary US and Europe and other wealthy nations today, we have a kind of flip of that where um, the people who are poorer are, are more likely to be heavy and obtaining that modelly thin toned body is a sign that, that you have leisure, that you can afford personal trainers, that you, um, you know, have that Peloton at home, whatever it is, a personal chef. And so again, you know, that becomes uh, the status symbol and, and, and the pressures are also again, greater on women. And um, it's, the, the token wife and becomes the very thin one and the symbol of, of status that men trade. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So there's a lot of contributing factors here, you know, a classist, um, it sounds like some, um, there's some racial roots to this, obviously sexist roots as a part. Yeah, of absolutely. Sabrina Strings um, has a, a great book out um, that looks at the, um, I'm going to grab a copy. Oh, here it is. Here's a copy right on my desk. Fearing the Black Body, the Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. So I definitely recommend that to your um, listeners for people who are really interested in how racism plays into this. And, and so it's not just about uh, 
people distinguishing themselves in terms of social class, but also white people distinguishing themselves against um, African Americans and, and other ethnic groups that were associate have been associated with bigger bodies. Mm. Yeah, you can really see how this is a complex issue and that it is so much more than just we want people to be healthy. Like it's so much deeper than that. And thank you for recommending that book. I can't wait to check it out. Yeah, I mean, as my work shows, other people's work, Sabrina String's work shows, the, the, the medical concerns come after the social concerns. I mean, historically, um, there's an, a book also by Peter Stearns that shows this, that first it becomes socially desirable to be thin, and then it becomes a medical issue. And it's actually middle-class white women going to the doctors and asking them how they can lose weight for reasons of fashion and, and social distinction that comes first. And then the doctor's like, oh, maybe we should, maybe this should be a specialty of ours and we should specialize and we should, um, we should claim jurisdiction of, of this issue. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like am just grasping the magnitude of, of what you had just said about how initially this started out as being a, a social desire to gain agency, to get ahead in life. Like you said, you know, social status that people wanted to be thin, to be desirable. And then it transitioned into being a concern for public health. That's and this is something we see again and again. I mean, the public health, what's healthy and what's desirable and what's moral, it's always those, the elites, those people in power who think that their lifestyle and, and what they do is the right way to do it and that the, um, that the lower classes, whatever they're doing is the wrong way to do this. And, um, and, we've, seen, and we've seen this with nutrition where, you know, for for a while, people were saying that processed foods and white bread were superior because that's what the the white middle classes were doing, and the and the you know the immigrants from um, from Italy or Ireland or wherever were eating more whole grains, and that was considered primitive and 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 also less healthy. So there's there's always this valorization of whatever is associated with a dominant group, whether that's dominant group by class, by race, by gender. Mm, so that's really such a driving force. Um, in, the, in the book, and I'm quoting you here, you said you conducted a systematic comparative analysis of U.S. news reporting on obesity with U.S. news reporting on the thinness-oriented eating disorders, anorexia, and bulimia. While fatness is more common among the American poor and minorities, anorexia and bulimia are diagnosed most often in middle-class white women and girls. The U.S. news reporting is more likely to blame individuals for being overweight or obese than for having anorexia and bulimia. And I thought this was a very interesting point that you made. So I'm curious, why do you think there's such a disparity in terms of seeing fatness as personal responsibility and a moral failing while not seeing eating disorders in that way? And why is it important to bring up this point? Yeah, so I think this, this again, it, it ties into our biases and, and stereotypes. And so, you know, and also it's, it's also very gendered. And so at this current time and place and in, in the contemporary U.S., but other wealthy nations as well, there's this understanding that 
to perform femininity, especially white femininity, well, you need to be thin. And that this also is reflects denying appetite and restraint and also a way as as people others have argued to kind of cut women down to size so that women shouldn't be taking up too much space they should be um you know in their place not um not throwing their weight around it's very gendered men are supposed to be heavier and bigger and so the anorexic is kind of taking this cultural mandate to an extreme and um whereas the being fat is not just is defying these expectations and is defining expectations around gender as well when it comes um to women and so there you know this i think um plays into seeing the anorexic as kind of the the good girl that has is maybe just gone too far and and is a victim and and understanding well that you you know must be an illness because who you know who would want you know wouldn't want to eat everybody wants to eat whereas the this idea that um people who are heavy are indulging in um and their appetites are unchecked and again it it you know it it plays into all of these stereotypes including stereotypes racialized stereotypes about people of color and poor people having unchecked appetites and um indulging in there and so they so it it leads to a kind of blaming as opposed to victimizing i mean neither one of these is especially positive they're both constraining and a problem um but they they kind of tap into racialized tropes and so the the kind of um powerless uh weak vict victim kind of a uh, white woman versus the unchecked ravenous woman of color mm yeah i can really see um how it is almost like a subliminal messaging of like putting people in their place and how they're supposed to behave to be good, you know, members of society, so to speak. Yeah, it's a kind of so social control and um yeah, and 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 that plays out um differently for for different groups, but I mean it's oppressive in um in both ways, but but in in different in different ways and um and i think the 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 kind of blaming is is really especially um especially dangerous and it it then you know this kind of blaming of um fat people for being fat and for and you know for for being also again just ra ravenous and and having unchecked appetites and in self-indulgent and all of that it really can have real policy implications i mean this kind of discourse has been used to say you know why are we giving all of these food stamps to poor people clearly they don't need more food look at them look how fat they are look how they indulge they can't you know they can't manage all these resources we're giving them we should give them fewer resources so that's a very it's a very dangerous kind of um discourse that we're seeing 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I want, we have, a, we are getting close to our end of time here. So I want to wrap up with a couple of more questions that I want to get into. So I'm going to shift gears here. You compare homosexuality to obesity in the book. And you had, like you mentioned earlier, you just wrote this book, uh, come out, come out wherever you are. Did I get that correct? Whoever you are. Mm-hmm. Whoever you are. Okay. Mm-hmm. Can you explain some of the parallels that you see and how people relate to them, to homosexuality and obesity, and why searching for a cause is searching for something to make them disappear? And why is trying to make obesity disappear so problematic? Yeah. Well, I mean, you try making, this is what you hear when we say we need to end the childhood obesity epidemic. Well, what does that mean? That there shouldn't be any fat children as opposed to you know, we need to, uh, we need to ensure that all of our children, regardless of their size, have, you know, aren't bullied to begin with because of their weight or some other thing, because of their sexual orientation, because of their race, because of their social class, and, you know, that they can thrive. And also, you know, maybe that they have access to, to good foods, that they are able to move, but, you know, the focus on the, on the weight really does send this message that these people shouldn't exist, right, combating the obesity epidemic. So I think that is a really dangerous um, kind of way of framing the issue. In terms of the, the similarities, well, you know, for one, with both weight and homosexuality, you know, being fatness and homosexuality, there's this pressure to change. Um, So thank goodness this is no longer seen as legitimate or legal, but conversion therapy for um, people, for for gay people and, and lesbians, this effort to literally change one's sexual orientation. Well, we know that it doesn't work. We know that it has really negative effects on people's self-esteem, their um, relationships, including their romantic and sexual relationships. It's just a really something that doesn't work and it has really negative uh, implications for people. Same with with weight, you know, so that there's all of these pressures to lose weight, to exit the category of fat person through diet. And Diets don't work. They they don't. Ninety five percent of the time, they do not work. And if you look around at your friends who have dieted, you will probably see this, right? People will lose weight in the short term, and then they will gain it all back, and usually more. And so, as a long term solution, it simply doesn't work, and it reinforces these feelings of self loathing and I'm not good. There's something wrong with me that I have to change. So it, um, you know, it, it really has a negative effect. And um, the, an alternative that I talk about in this new book, Come Out, Come Out, Whoever You Are, is to come out. And, of course, the LGBTQ community has really just shown the power of coming out politics uh, since the, the, really since the, um, the late 60s when the movement became much more radicalized and inspired by the civil rights movement and um, and used coming out as a way to, to show people, listen, you do you do have friends, you do know people who are gay and you like us and you know and if you've you've all you, you you've been friends with me before, you know, before I revealed to you my sexual orientation and now that you know that that I'm gay 
maybe you won't support you know policies that that oppress us or discriminate against us and and those politics have been extremely successful and you know we've made so much progress of course there's more to go but there's there's just been incredible progress in terms of um, our attitudes about sexual orientation and um, you know we have now marriage equality is the law of the land we have one of our leading presidential candidates for the um, Democratic nominee is 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 an um, is gay an outwardly gay man so we've made huge progress and what I show in the book is some of the ways that these other groups are are learning from that and, and engaging in their own coming out politics and so with fat which is one of the first cases that I studied you're people and I was surprised when I started doing interviews with the fat acceptance movement and I asked that people how did you get involved with the fat acceptance movement and people said to me well let me tell you when I came I first came out as fat and I'm like wow huh why are you using this language and what does it mean and of course it means something different to come out as fat than to come out as gay it typically doesn't mean that you're revealing that you were fat you know if this is an in-person conversation it's probably pretty obvious you know that you what your body size is it's something that's visible but it is revealing something really important and and radical which is that you are not going to apologize for your size you are not a thin person trapped in a fat body you actually identify as a, a fat person you are unapologetically fat and that is just a really radical act that re that forces other people to come to terms with their own biases and um, and calls them out on it and I think it can also be a way of gaining well self-acceptance and self-love but also shifting people's attitudes where they start to question you know whether whether they should just un thinkingly assume that it's bad and shameful to be heavy when they have friends and know people who are unapologetically and openly embracing this part of their identity. So I think mm -hmm. it's really radical. Yeah, I definitely think it's um, radical. And I also think it's gaining traction, especially with social media, the power of Instagram, the, the fat positive, fat acceptance movements are growing especially yeah. as more of us are becoming aware of the anti-diet movement and that diets don't work that they lead to weight gain but that also obsessing over weight is making us sick you you know you mentioned the weight discrimination and the stigma all of these things it's radical and i also think that it's necessary oh absolutely and yeah it really is just very encouraging to see that to see this that this is picking up i still unfortunately see a lot of continued you know the the diet culture and, and the diet industry can morph and and shift in in ways so now it's all about um health challenges you know which are <laughs> are temporary short-term basically weight loss diets um that are you know very popular um and also spreading through networks so so we see both, but um, but I think it's it's great and encouraging to see you know see the signs of fat acceptance and body acceptance and and it's spreading online and people really embracing that. Yeah, yeah. This has been absolutely amazing, Ab Abigail. Thank you so much. If you could. Oh, thank you.
Yeah. If you could leave our listeners with just like one lesson or message, what would you want them to walk away with from this episode? Well, you know, we've been talking a lot about uh, body size and weight. That's been the focus of our conversation. And, and I would just encourage your listeners, you know, if you are just know that it's unhealthy to be heavier and better to be thin um, and that weight loss is something you think you definitely should be pursuing, that, that this is something you should question. And you can, um, you can gain some, you know, you can question this by looking at my book, What's Wrong With Fat. You can look at Sabrina String's book, Fearing the, the Black Body, and there's other works that really would um, would lead you to question this. There's Lindo Bacon's book, um, Health at Every Size. And so to question that and to also think about, um, you know, I think really the most important thing in terms of our health is self-love and acceptance and acceptance of others. And as much as you can cultivate that as opposed to trying to change yourself or change other people, loved ones in your lives, then I think you'll get a lot of positive benefit from that. Yes. Yeah. So where can everybody find you if they want to learn more about you? Where can they find your new book? So you can find my new book on Amazon. It is shipping today. Come out, come out, whoever you are. You can also find me and links to all of my books and, and, um, and news media appearances and other things at abigailsegui.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Abigail. Thank you so much, Cara. Wait, don't go yet. Was this episode helpful? Was it informative? Did you get a lot of value out of it? If so, then I would be so grateful if in return, as a way to say thank you, you leave a ratings and review on the podcast on iTunes. That really helps keep the podcast going. It lets me know you're listening and enjoying it. And I would be so grateful if you would leave a ratings and review on iTunes. If you don't have iTunes, share it with a friend or share it in your Instagram stories tagging me. That would be so helpful. And I hope you got a lot out of today's interview with Abigail. Isn't she fabulous? Wow. Oh my gosh. So great. That is all we have today. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you guys next week.